Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 3. It is December 17th, 2007. We are way behind, folks. We're wicked behind. We're so far behind. I, I'm so sorry. I apologize. It's taken us two days to get the show together here and get it out to you, and usually we're much faster than that, so please forgive me. It's been a crazy two weeks here at BOA HQ. I can't talk too much about it right now, but bear with us because things are just getting crazy, but at the same time, quite good. Now, onto this week's program. We add an undeniable superstar to the BOA Audio universe. I'm talking about the former head of the UK Ministry of Defense UFO Project. He is the venerable Nick Pope. Easily one of the most requested guests we've ever had on the show. I've gotten emails probably since about three months after the show started, leading up to when I actually got Nick on the show, asking me to get Nick Pope. Always one of the biggest names when I ask people to send in guest requests. So we've got him here on the show. It's going to be an amazing interview. We cover a ton of stuff. I've heard countless Nick Pope interviews over the years, so I definitely want to bring some new questions to the table, new points of view. We're going to hit on two big topics we love to cover here on the show, the sociology of the UFO field and the international nature of UFO studies, plus tons of more information. It's just jam-packed. I've already listened to the show, and trust me, folks, this one is easily already in the best of BOA pile. Somehow, I'm sure there's someone out there who does not know who Nick Pope is. So for that sole person who is unfamiliar with Nick Pope, I know you're listening, and I'm going to give you the bio. Here it is. Nick Pope used to run the British government's UFO project at the Ministry of Defense. Initially skeptical, his research and investigation into the UFO phenomenon and access to former classified government files on the subject soon convinced him that the phenomenon raised important defense and national security issues, especially when the witnesses were military pilots or where UFOs were tracked on radar. Nick also looked into other mysteries such as alien abductions, crop circles, and ghosts. He now continues his research in a private capacity and is recognized as a leading authority on UFOs and the unexplained. He does extensive media work, lectures all around the world, and has acted as consultant on numerous television documentaries. His website is www.nickpope.net. Pretty simple, Nick Pope, all one word, dot net. Check it out. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on October 18, 2007. The Venerable Nick Pope, talking about the UK Ministry of Defense UFO Project on BOA Audio, Season 3. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a very special edition of Been All of America Audio. We have just an amazing guest this week for you, one of the most requested guests ever on the program. I've gotten so many emails asking me to have this guest on that finally we got around to doing it and putting it together, and I'm very, very excited to have him here on the program. Between the years 1991 and 1994, he worked at the UFO desk of the Ministry of Defense in the UK. He is world-renowned. Everybody's heard of him. He's extremely popular in the world of ufology. He has an amazing story. Uh, he's the author of four books, Open Skies, Closed Minds, The Uninvited, Operation Thunderchild, and Operation Thunderstrike. Direct from London, England, UK, Nick Pope, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's good to be on the show. 
Uh, let's start out with the bio, the background. Uh, bring people who haven't heard of you up to date. I'm not sure how they haven't have heard of you by now, but there's someone out there, I'm sure. So <laughs> let's let's bring the newcomers up to date on who Nick Pope is, your bio, your background, where you came from, and uh, your story as it is. Sure. I joined the Ministry of Defense in 1985, and they have a policy that they move you around every few years so you get a, a broad range of experience and you do a whole load of, of different jobs in, in very different areas. And quite by chance, I had no previous knowledge, I had no previous interest, but in 1991 um, there was a vacancy. It happened to be on the UFO project and I was asked, would, would I like to do that job? So I said, yes, okay, I was looking for a move. Uh, the timing was right. I got on with the, uh, the the people, so I said yes, I'll 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 take that job, and I, that's what I did for the next three years of my life, and it changed my life completely. Definitely sounds like it. Talk a little bit about this post here in the Ministry of Defense. You know, sort of how that post came about, and the evolution of the of the U, I call it the UFO desk. I guess you call it, but the UFO project, or, or however you want to term it. Sure. I mean, it's, it's the same thing. It's just words. Interestingly, we didn't have a, a formal title for our uh, UFO research effort at all. Of course, in America, it was Project Blue Book, but uh, we, we just didn't call it anything. So I, when I talk about the UFO project, I, I just use that as a sort of shorthand to, to really say what we did. Um, funnily enough, it was very similar to the United States Air Force uh, research effort. The Ministry of Defense got into the whole subject back in 1950 when our chief scientific advisor said, look, we shouldn't dismiss these UFO sightings without some form of proper scientific investigation. Um, and so just as um, Project Blue Book had been set up to, to look at allegations, I suppose, that, that strange things were penetrating American air defenses, uh, the Ministry of Defense was doing pretty much the same thing, albeit three years behind the curve. And since 1950 to the, the present day, the Ministry of Defense has received about 10,000 UFO reports, uh, most of which, of course, can be explained as misidentifications. But uh, we've, we've had that project pretty much continuously. And uh, so I was really one of just a number of people who have held that position over, over the past few decades. Mm -hmm. The first sort of question that came to my mind was, why do you think the UK continued onward with this UFO project after the idea sort of came about in the US and was all but abandoned, you know, after the Conan report in the US, they kind of shut down Blue Book. The UK post, that's still going on. Why do you think uh, they kept it going uh, when the US kind of bailed out on the whole idea of, of a sort of UFO desk, if you will? I think partly this whole thing is, is uh, what I would term events-led. And uh, certainly there were over the years um, many people who did want to shut down our UFO project in exactly the same way as, as uh, Blue Book uh, had the plug pulled in 1969. There are uh, a lot of people in the Ministry of Defense who think we've got better things to spend time and money on. But... Um, but when I talk about events-led, I, I mean just that. I mean, just as, just as people might want to uh, say, right, let's, let's close the project, along comes a series of UFO sightings where the witnesses are police officers or where 
uh, pilots see these UFOs or where something's tracked on radar uh, performing speeds and maneuvers ahead of anything uh, that we can do. So, um, you know, it, we, we kind of follow the phenomenon to a certain extent. We wait and see what happens. And certainly um, when the Americans closed down uh, Blue Book in 69, I think in, in Britain the big wave of sightings in 1967 was still a little bit too fresh in people's minds. And, and people thought, well, hang on, there's something going on here. Um, and I think it would have sent the wrong message. That's not to say I don't think the British government might be thinking of pulling out uh, soon. I, I think, and I've, I've received a few hints, that uh, the UK might be about to disengage completely. Oh, wow. And, and one of the things that kind of fascinates me is, as you said, you, you came along to the post. Uh, obviously, there was a dude before you. There was a guy who had the job before you, and, and someone took over the job after you. Why do you think you broke out and became sort of like this media personality in the UK? Why do you think that there was so much limelight, I guess you could say, or so much attention brought to you and your post at the UFO project? I think it was a number of things. Firstly, uh, the period of time when I was doing that, that job was pretty much the time, and I know this, this is going to sound uh, a little bit um, off the wall, but it was the, the time when the X-Files was hugely popular. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I, I think the public and the media kind of latched on to the British government's UFO project as, as the real X-Files in a sense. So, so that was one reason why I found myself in the media spotlight. Actually, where I was doing the job, because of course we, we tried to be fairly open about things. Um, and uh, I appeared on television, for example, as a, an official spokesperson for the Ministry of Defense. Um, and it, it was just about at the time when this whole um, uh, phenomenon uh, was, was becoming more and more um, uh, of interest to people again after perhaps a period when, when it's been a little bit out of favor. So I think that was one thing. The other thing was I, I've always been, I suppose, in my government work, and I, I only left the Ministry of Defence last year after a 21-year career. But I'd always been regarded as a bit of a maverick, so I was uh, one of these people who uh, said when I'd completed that job, well, look, I said, if, if all these military people are going to write their, uh, their memoirs and things and uh, write books about uh, the war in Iraq and things like that, I'm going to... I, I've got an interesting story to tell. I'm going to write a book too. So I, so I did, and uh, and that, of course, uh, really propelled me into the the media spotlight. And what's become of the post since you left? Now you said you sort of you kind of hear in rumblings that they may close down, and I've heard like in the last year or so that they're really swamped with Freedom of Information Act requests at the at the UFO post. So what's the status of the UFO project right now in the UK? It's a really interesting situation. When I was doing that job, we didn't have the Freedom of Information Act. Um, it's, it's actually comparatively new in the United Kingdom. So I spent my time researching and investigating um, the, the UFO phenomenon and basically looking at the sightings that were reported to me on an almost daily basis. Now, those people doing that job um, and as you say, uh, they are dealing with 
Freedom of Information Act requests. The Ministry of Defence receives more FOI requests on UFOs than any other subject, including the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, um, all the sorts of things that you would think would, would be very popular. So they spend so much time doing that. They really don't have much time for meaningful investigations. And um, to give an illustration of that, when you look at some of the classic cases that have occurred in Britain uh, over the years, the Rendlesham Forest incident from 1980, uh, the Cosford incident from 1993, the case files on those sorts of sightings run to over 100 pages of documentation. Oh, wow. Early, earlier this year, we had a, a hugely significant sighting involving a pilot who was flying near the Channel Islands, and he and some of his passengers saw a UFO estimated at being up to a mile long, and it was tracked on radar. The Ministry of Defence case file just ran to nine pages. So, so in a sense, I think they are already beginning to disengage from this subject because you can't you can't investigate a sighting like that and, and produce a case file of nine pages. That's that's nonsense. Yeah. And if they shut it down, is it going to become like they're just going to announce, you know, that we're, we're closing down the, uh, the UFO project and, and that'll sort of be it? Uh, what do you think the reaction will be from the public if that happens? I think they'll do exactly that. I think, uh, I think what they'll say is that, and they may even quote Project Blue Book, they may even say, um, well, we, uh, in common with the Americans, had a UFO project but the Americans closed theirs down in 1969 because they said that um, uh, 20 years of research had really uh, produced nothing concrete. Well, we kept ours on a little longer, but frankly, you know, we've got nothing concrete here. Um, we have British troops in Iraq, in Afghanistan, deployed all around the world. We have better things to spend taxpayers' money on. Uh, we're out of the game. That's what I predict will happen um, certainly within a year, if not uh, considerably sooner. Oh, wow. Yeah, I think oh. that will be a mistake, of, of course. I mean, uh, you know, my view is uh, that, that uh, when you have sightings, such as the one I mentioned uh, a moment or two ago, where, where pilots are seeing UFOs and they're being tracked on radar, um, it, it seems to me a nonsense to uh, to say we're, we're not interested. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it'll uh, it'll be uh, pretty surprising and, and dis disappointing, really. Now, during your tenure at the UFO Project, did you have a lot of interaction with uh, some of the UK or US UFO groups? Did they sort of uh, ever try and get in touch with you, or or you know, did they try and work with you or anything like that, or was it sort of like you you tried to keep hands off in that area? Well. Certainly, my terms of reference were very much uh, limited to the situation in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. So um, I really had very little interaction with American groups. Although from time to time I, I was contacted and I, I, you know, tried to be as helpful as I could. But what I did do, however, is engage quite proactively with um, various British. Uh, UFO researchers and organizations. And what I basically said is, look, I said, I know that uh, you, the UFO community, uh, distrust the Ministry of Defense, and some of you may think that uh, we are part of a cover-up. Um, I said, look, my door is open. Let's talk. Um, let's exchange information. 
uh, and it was interesting because some people took up that invitation and said, hey, this is great. Yeah, let's let's go and do just that. Other people said, whoa, this is some sort of uh, disinformation operation. This is some sort of uh, attempt to infiltrate the UFO community. This is some sort of ministry defense ploy. Um, and a lot of people were very suspicious. But I was genuinely trying to be as open and as helpful as possible because at the time, um, we we were talking about, um, I mean, not the UFO project, I mean, government more generally was talking about trying to, to be more open, trying to engage with the public more. So in, in a sense, I was really just reflecting a much wider government initiative, which ultimately led to our Freedom of Information Act, which, as I say, didn't even come into force uh, fully and, and, and until very recently. Yeah. Did you have any European counterparts as far as uh, in the UFO realm go? Was this UFO project post sort of uh, unique to, to the UK, or did you have sort of uh, you know contemporaries and counterparts in, in other parts of Europe? Well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, I didn't really liaise with them much because, as I say, my terms of reference were very much national. But, of course, uh, the French have done a lot of very good work uh, on the UFO issue and, of course, uh, famously earlier this year opened their archives to the public and uh, Jacques Patenay from uh, Gépin within the French um, National Space Agency has has uh, spoken very publicly about the, the, the French UFO files being opened uh, to the public and being made available online. Uh, the Italian Air Force, uh, they have looked at the UFO issue um, over many years, and I met at a conference a few years ago uh, a colonel who, who was charged with that work. Uh, the, the phenomenon seems to be investigated on a, a very sort of uh, ad hoc basis. Some countries seem to be quite interested and quite proactive, and they'll, they'll get their, their military, their government, their intelligence agencies looking at this. Other countries uh, don't seem to be interested at all. Uh, it, it goes back to the point that, uh, of course, the UFO phenomenon is a global one, but sadly, it is handled on a very national basis. Yeah. Um, the Belgians, of course, had an incredibly... Um, interesting wave of UFO sightings running from 1989 through to 1990, culminating in the famous occasion on, on 30th of March uh, 1990 where uh, UFO was tracked on radar, where two F-16 fighters were scrambled to try and intercept the UFO. Um, so uh, I, I did liaise through our British embassy on, on that because we had a very similar sighting in 1993. So there were things that I could do, but essentially most of my work was confined to the United Kingdom. Yeah. Maybe extrapolate on that 1993 case. I asked Nick Redfern, I told him I was talking to you uh, for the interview, and he said, ask him about the 1993 Flying Triangle case uh, that, that you contacted the U.S. and Belgium about. Can you talk a little bit about that case? This is probably... Um, Britain's second most famous UFO uh, case after the Rendlesham Forest incident. Uh, it happened in 1993, 
by an interesting coincidence. It actually happened um, three years to the very day after the Belgian sightings that we were just discussing. These um, UFO sightings um, started at about 8.30 on the 30th of March, 1993, and the last one was at about 2.40 in the morning on the 31st. So they lasted for a period of about six hours, covered a, a number of different areas of the United Kingdom. We had about 60 reports, as I recall, at the, the Ministry of Defence, but clearly that, that was just the tip of the iceberg. I was aware from liaising with UFO researchers, uh, from the local media, the police, that, that all sorts of other people were seeing UFOs, uh, reporting them to other places apart from the Ministry of Defence. So this was a big wave of sightings. Um, there, uh, I mean, there are all sorts of strange stories from that night, uh, from the farmer who came back, uh, he, he'd seen a UFO sighting, um, and he came back to find all the cows in one of his fields standing in a circle facing each other. Absolutely weird sort of situation, sounds like something out of the X-Files. A lot of police officers saw this UFO, and it flew over two military bases at Cosford and Shawbury. That, that's why Cosford and Shawbury are two Air Force bases. Um, uh, it was seen by a patrol of Air Force police at Cosford, and then it was seen by the Met officer at Shawbury. He described a vast triangular-shaped UFO uh, flying fairly slowly over the countryside towards the military base, uh, firing a narrow beam of light down at the ground, uh, emitting a low-frequency humming sound. He said it was uh, traveling very slowly. Suddenly, he said the light beam flipped off and the thing flashed away to the horizon. And he said, look, he said, I work at an Air Force base. I've been in, in the Air Force for eight years. I see... Uh, military helicopters, Air Force jets almost every day. He said, this, this is many, many times faster than anything I've ever seen in my life. My head of division was actually very skeptical about the UFO project, and, and actually he wanted it closed down. He thought the whole thing was a waste of time and money. Uh, it was in his division, but he didn't particularly want it there. Uh, on this particular case, even he uh, got very, very interested, uh, and I'd seen him, I don't know, a handful of times uh, in the year and a half that I'd worked for him, uh, senior Ministry of Defense official, and in, in the week after this incident, I'd seen him probably more times than I'd seen him in the last year. He was in and out of my office uh, all the time, seeing if there were any new UFO reports uh, that had come in, and he briefed the assistant chief of the air staff, one of the UK's most senior Air Force officers, and his briefing, even though he was a complete skeptic on the UFO issue, it, it said, in summary, uh, there would seem to be evidence that on this night, an object, an unidentified object or objects, uh, was operating over the United Kingdom. Oh, wow. Now, that's a, that's a big statement. Um, what I would uh, also say is um, 
go on to the Ministry of Defence website. If anyone's interested in this, uh, go on to the MOD website, which is just mod.uk. It's as simple as that. And uh, into the search field, just put COSFORD, C-O-S-F-O-R-D. And you'll get about half a dozen uh, hits. It'll be very obvious which is the UFO file. And you will see 100 pages plus of documentation uh, on this case. This is a, an investigation that I led. Um, I think it's very important in, in a field uh, where, frankly, there are an awful lot of dubious claims and, and, and such like. Everything that I'm talking about, uh, all the cases that, that we're going to discuss, every, everything like that, I can back this up and I can say to people, well, don't take my word for it. Go and read the case file. It's, it's all on the MOD website. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you can find all that kind of information there. Now, I'm under the impression that you had, uh, not obviously you, or maybe you, I'm not sure, but that the UK had contacted the US to find out if, if they were behind the, the flying triangle and that they had kind of in turn sort of turned it around and thought maybe that the UK was behind it because they weren't or they were wondering, you know, well, we don't have anything to do with it. Do you? Is that, am I hearing it right that way? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and you can read uh, those those documents in that same file on the Cosford incident. Um, what happened was that um, there had been rumors in the United Kingdom that there was a, a secret prototype American aircraft codenamed Aurora, which might be operating over the UK. Now, actually, the UK asked the US government about this. The US government denied it. And... Uh, British ministers stood up in Parliament and said no such aircraft is operating over the United Kingdom. What was interesting was that when we asked the Americans, look, do you have some sort of hypersonic aircraft, triangular, that can do these sorts of maneuvers? Because we've been having these, these UFO sightings. Look, is there something that you've forgotten to tell us? <laughs> and And that's when... Um, the American government turned around to the British and said, no, but it's interesting you should say that because we've had similar sightings and we were wondering if you, the British government, had been test flying something, I guess, over places like the Hudson Valley uh, and forgotten to tell us. And we said, no, my goodness, we wish we did have something like that, but uh, not in our wildest dreams. It's not us. So, of course, we were all left saying, well, if it's not us and if it's not you, who is it? And, and this is, I mean, this is it's absolutely phenomenal sort of uh, discussions to be party to. I mean, it, it really is uh, like something out of the X-Files sometimes. It sounds pretty strange. Now, how would you describe the, not so much uh, what the, the government end of it now, but how would you describe the, the civilian end of the UK UFO scene, if you will? And I know it's sort of peaked and peaked out in the 90s with the popularity of X-Files and stuff like that, and I'm under the impression it's sort of uh, in a little bit of a recession over there as far as UK uh, UFO interest, but how would you describe the UFO scene over there in, in the United Kingdom? Yes, it's a little bit fragmented, but I wonder whether that isn't the case uh, in a number of countries. I think that the rise of the Internet, um, you know, nowadays... Every researcher can have a really good website. Every group with as few as 
two or three people can can give themselves a fancy name and <laughs> and, and such like. Yeah. I mean, in in the old days, uh, there were perhaps two or three big UFO groups in the UK. Now it's fragmented. Every, everyone's everyone's doing their own thing. In a sense, that's fine. I mean, it's the democratization of of ufology. But in a sense, it's become a little bit fragmented as well. I mean, for example, when um, Graham Birdsall's UFO magazine uh, was was um, at at its peak, it was on the newsstands. It was getting fifteen or twenty thousand um, readers every uh, issue. Um, when they put on conferences, they would get six or seven hundred people in. Um, I can't remember when I last heard of a UFO conference in Britain that had more than than uh, about 100, 150 people. Yeah. So I don't think that necessarily means that the subject is less popular. I think it it just it reflects a change in in um, the way that people uh, now now get involved in this subject. I think now it is all podcasts and blogs and and um, email lists and discussion forums. And the old days of big annual conferences and, and UFO groups with monthly meetings, uh, that maybe is something that's on the way out. I, I think it's, as I say, it's not, it's not that interest in UFOs is lessening. It's just that people are getting involved in different ways. Definitely. And it seems to be that that seems to be the case also here in the US, so it's not just a UK type of thing. Yeah. Now I think and what's what's slightly dishonest is where skeptics try and say, well, you know, the the subject's dying, there's no real interest in this anymore. Um it's 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 sort of uh, ufology is dead. I, I think that's nonsense. It's not dead. It's just it's just um, being done in a very very different way. Yeah. And how would you say the FOIA has changed the scene over there in the UK? Because you said uh, you know like they're really looking at older cases now a lot, and maybe some of these new cases are kind of falling by the wayside because a lot of people are focusing on the older cases now that they can get the information. Talk a little bit about how that FOIA has uh, sort of. Uh, become a sea change over there in the UK? Well, like I say, the, the Ministry of Defence gets more FOI requests on UFOs than any other subject. So it is a big job. It stopped the Ministry of Defence really doing meaningful investigations because the people on the UFO project have to, to give priority to FOI because, of course, if they don't, they're in breach of the law. So that's the first point. Uh, the second point is, I think that um, there is big interest in in this, and uh, there are whole files um, now available at the National Archives in Kew. Um, this is this is a, a part of London where where our National Archives are based, and there are uh, dozens upon dozens of UFO files there. Uh, but increasingly, the Ministry of Defence is trying to scan onto its website as much UFO information as possible. Uh, and that, I think, is going to be the future. Uh, everyone nowadays, uh, people don't want to travel to the National Archives to have to uh, spend a whole day trawling through uh, paper files. People want everything uh, online 
at the click of a mouse. Mm -hmm. So uh, the Ministry of Defence is putting a lot of effort into uh, to, to doing this. And again, what what people can do is go on to the Ministry of Defence website, mod.uk, and uh, you can either put the term UFO into the search box, or you can go to F for Freedom of Information, get onto the Freedom of Information part of the website, and, and then put the term UFO uh, in, in there. The, the Ministry of Defence is still, I think, working out how best to present this information in a user-friendly way, uh, but there is an awful lot of documentation out there, and there is a lot more to come. In fact, the British government is considering doing what the French government did earlier this year and release the whole lot, simply because the burden of responding on a case-by-case -case basis to uh, an ever-increasing number of FOI requests, that burden is becoming intolerable. So the easiest thing to do is release the whole lot and say, look, there it is, that's everything we've got. And these UFO files, that's the kind of stuff that you were handling when you were at the UFO project, right? I guess the question is, when someone reported a UFO sighting and you investigated it, would they ever get any information back? I would try to, certainly when I was doing the job, I would try to get back to anyone that made a report and give them our best assessment of, of what it was, which, of course, in most cases uh, was a conventional explanation. So in... in Many, many cases I would uh, write back or telephone back or, or um, uh, contact the person and say, look, we've investigated this case. It transpires that on the date in question in the location where you saw your sighting, there was a military exercise being carried out at night uh, using uh, flares, um, and we think that this is what you saw. The files, yes, the files can be case files um, of, of UFO sightings, but equally they can be files relating to the way that this subject is, is um, uh, raised from time to time in Parliament. Um, parliamentary representatives have, have raised questions about this over the years, so obviously the Ministry of Defence has to deal with that. The media have raised the subject. Um, uh, members of the public have corresponded, um, and not to report a UFO, but to ask about the policy on the phenomenon. Uh, so there are many, many different types of files, uh, not just the sightings, but the, the policy files as well. So there's an awful lot of information. And of course, it's a big job to scan that all um, onto the internet. And, and the other point is, there are still parts of those files that can't be released, not least um, basic things like the names and addresses of witnesses, because of course we have privacy laws here in the, the UK, as many countries do, mm -hmm. and if you report a UFO to the government, uh, you probably don't want the media knowing your name. So of course we can't release the, date, uh, the, the names and addresses of witnesses. Yeah. There are other things, of course, as well that we can't release. Um, technical information about the capabilities of military radar, um, information passed to us in confidence by uh, other countries. Uh, so it's not quite as easy as some people think to say, open up your UFO files. You've actually got to go through everything 
very, very carefully. Yeah, exactly. Now, you, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe extrapolate a little more on your perspective uh, of being in ufology and sort of coming from that other side, you know, how the government's always sort of seen as the enemy and for many people in ufology. You say that there's not a cover-up, and I believe that, that you believe that, but talk about how it may be frustrating to deal with the people that are always trying to get you to slip up or are disappointed that you're not going to blow the whistle on some big thing or all those strange feelings you must get from all the various people in the world of ufology who want uh, a different sort of situation to come out of this. Sure. I mean, I'm not saying that somewhere, um, probably not in Britain, but but somewhere there isn't a crashed UFO in a hangar somewhere and... and um, alien bodies. But what I'm saying is, if there are such things, I have never seen them myself, and I have never been briefed on them, and I have never picked up the slightest hint um, from my official work that such things exist. So all I, can, all I can do is call it how I see it, and say, look, I haven't seen these things. Now, a lot of people who believe that there are such things think, well, either I must be lying, or I must be a disinformation agent, or I must have been out of the loop, or any other number of different theories. Mm -hmm. So it is frustrating. I find myself accused of all sorts of things by the UFO community. But all I can do is, is be as, as honest and, and, and truthful as I can and say, look, I'm not debunking the UFO phenomenon. Far from it. I think there are serious defense, national security, and flight safety issues here. I would be horrified if the British government closed down the UFO project, though I think they probably will. Um, I'm a passionate believer that the subject should be taken seriously, but I haven't seen any crashed saucers and dead aliens. And that, that upsets diehard conspiracy theorists. But in a sense, you see, nothing I can say to people like that is going to convince them. Yeah. So in a sense, there's no point in my even engaging uh, with people who so strongly have those beliefs, because my my denial will simply be seen as lies and disinformation. So I'm I'm in a lose lose situation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's that's one of the big problems I think with ufology. In that, here you are, a highly credible former government employee of the uh, the British government, you know, and you're pro UFO, you're pro serious UFO investigation, but because you're not saying exactly what a lot of people in ufology want to hear. They're not embracing that with the gusto that they should, and that, that's disappointing. It, it is disappointing, and, and um, the, the worst thing is that actually I think the demonization of government and military by the UFO community is, is just about the, uh, the, the most destructive thing in the entire phenomenon, because um, if people would simply sort of acknowledge that, look, governments are in a difficult position here. There, there are sightings, undeniably, uh, all around the world uh, that governments and military can't explain. Um, what actually should be happening is that there should be serious discussion between uh, governments, uh, the military, the scientific community, the intelligence community, the public, uh, the electric elected representatives, and people should be saying, look, let, let's work on this in a collaborative way. But when, when a small handful of conspiracy theorists absolutely demonize government and the military and, and accuse anyone 
who who has been involved in in this subject uh, from an official side of being part of a cover up it's no wonder that that governments and the military sort of take a step back and say well then i'm not why should we why should we talk to these people yeah exactly yeah it's uh, it's something that needs to change i think I, I mean another classic example is the dogfight between the ufology and scientists, radio astronomers doing SETI. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, it seems that these are, are two different groups of people who, broadly speaking, are interested in the same thing, but approaching it with a different methodology. Well, shouldn't these two groups of people sit down and talk to each other and say, well, you know, that's not the way we do things, but hey, we're, we're after the same thing, so let's talk. But, but what actually happens is UFO people... Uh, kind of accuse the SETI community of, of um, being being part of the cover-up, and and the SETI community accuses the UFO uh, lobby of, of being a bunch of um, uh, nutcases. <laughs> you know, this is hardly conducive to uh, the proper taking forward of a very serious issue. Exactly. Yes. Definitely. Just to give people an idea of sort of like what an average day in, in the life of the UFO project is, take me through sort of uh, what would be like an average case that you would get and uh, how you'd sort of go through looking at it. Okay. Um, well, the average day would be getting in and then finding, because of course proportionally quite a lot of the sightings are actually at night. So what I would do is that I would come into the office somewhere between 8 and 9 o'clock in the morning and I would uh, receive uh, reports of any UFO sightings that had been uh, phoned in uh, during the, the preceding night uh, by the, the duty officers. Uh, and, and then essentially I would begin an investigation and it would go something like this. The first thing that I would do is, is almost just apply common sense. I would take a look at the, the information and say, well, what does this sound like it might be? Because statistically, historically, we knew both from Blue Book and from our own files that, that you know, most UFOs would turn out to be misidentifications. So what I would do was apply a bit of common sense and say, well, okay, if you're dealing with a, a bright white light and a red and green light either side, that's probably an aircraft. I mean, it's, in a sense, it's as simple as that. Uh, but what I would then try and do is, is basically a, a detective job. I would uh, have, for example, all sorts of information available to me. I would have information on um, flight paths. I would have information on where military exercises were taking place. I would have all the information about uh, weather balloon launches, uh, satellite uh, paths. I would have astronomical data. Uh, I would have information about airships, um, all this sort of thing. Uh, and, and what I would then do is, is try and uh, correlate the UFO sighting with all of this information that I had. Uh, another big part of any UFO investigation, of course, is radar. And I would engage with the Air Force specialists and say, right, we've had a UFO sighting. Uh, in this location at this time. Let's have a look at the radar tapes and see if there's anything unusual there. Uh, let's liaise with the local police. Let's see if we can uh, find find out whether they were alerted to anything unusual 
uh, or indeed whether they had reports of other sightings. Uh, and uh, as we touched on earlier in the interview, I would speak to the UFO community themselves and say, look, we've got an interesting sighting here. Have you got anything? So, so that was the sort of bread and butter of the job, the day-to-day -day business of, of doing it. So in a sense, although we talk about the real X-Files, there was no running around in, in warehouses with torches and guns. It, it was rather more scientific and, and methodological in its approach. So you never had to kill anybody? <laughs> no, absolutely not. Oh, that's disappointing. Now, I saw that you estimated 80% uh, can be explained. 80% of the cases that you got can be explained. 15% insufficient evidence, uh, insufficient information. Um, and then there's the 5% of cases that cannot be explained. For those 5%, what became of those? Did they get put into a special file, or they sort of just, uh, you know, mixed in with all the rest? This is a complete catch-22. Yeah, they, they weren't separated out, so they're all in the same files. Uh, the UFO files tend to be organized just by date. So you will get, sometimes you'll get um, a, a file which will just be all the UFO sightings that occurred in one particular year. And that's the most common way it's been done. So they're not split out into identified, unidentified, or insufficient data. They're all just there in date order. And, you know, you'll go through them and you'll find some probably just aircraft lights and some very interesting. But as to what you do with them, this was, of course, the ultimate frustration. Once you'd eliminated all the conventional possibilities, all you could actually say is, look, we're fairly sure that this isn't uh, a misidentification of aircraft lights, weather balloons, satellites, meteors, uh, etc. We, we know what it isn't, but we don't know what it is. So when I talked earlier about my skeptical head of division briefing the assistant chief of the air staff and, and saying there is some evidence to suggest that an uh, unidentified object or objects was operating over the UK, the answer came back, well, this is very interesting, but you've actually, of course, done all the investigation that, that you could do. Mm -hmm. uh, where else can you take this? And, and that's the ultimate frustration of uh, UFO investigations. Of the 5%, I guess you could say, um, like in your head or in your notes or something anywhere, do you have, like, which cases, you know, people should be sure to check out in the long run? Oh, I think it, it will all come out under the Freedom of Information Act. Um, the sorts of things that make uh, a UFO case very interesting, the sorts of things that put it into that 5% um, are, are fairly, fairly sort of common sense things. It's, for example, where the witness is, is somebody like a pilot or a police officer or you know, military personnel. It might be where there's a photograph or a video that's been subjected to technical analysis by Air Force specialists uh, who, who look at imagery in the course of their normal duties and where they've found no evidence of any, uh, any fakery or, or, or anything conventional. It, it might be the fact that the visual sighting has been correlated on radar, uh, or it might be the case that uh, a combination of all these these factors, uh, say pilot sighting and radar data, has has shown an object uh, just just doing, as I, think I mentioned earlier, 
speeds and maneuvers that we can't match. Mm -hmm. So it, it's those sorts of things that put a UFO sighting into that 5%. Yeah. One of the things that I uh, just found out recently when I was doing the research for the interview that was really surprising was that you ended up getting a lot of other weird stuff to investigate at the UFO project, um, stuff like abductions, animal mutilations, crop circles, uh, ghosts at military bases. Talk a little bit about, you know, some of the other weird peripheral stuff that ended up getting tossed into your lap because you were the UFO guy. Yes, it, it happened um, really by default. This was not in my formal terms of reference, but you simply can't, be looking at UFOs without finding that anything else weird and wonderful comes your way simply because there's nowhere else to send it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, when in 1985 a, a farmer noticed strange patterns in his crops and uh, accused military helicopters, he, he said, look, the army must be doing some sort of low-flying training and ruining my crops with the downwash from the rotor blades. Uh, causing these these weird weird circles in my crops, uh, the military investigated because of course they want to keep the farming community happy because they do a lot of military training on on their land. Um, they said, "Look, it's not us. It's impossible for a helicopter to cause these sorts of patterns." Um, but we'll send a report to the Ministry of Defence. Well, the only place they could send that report was the UFO project, because that was the only thing they could think. Where else do you send reports of strange phenomena? So, yes, we found ourselves getting all sorts of, of things. I've spoken to uh, many, many security police personnel who guard military establishments. Very tough people, you know, with, with um, guard dogs, guns, all, all that. Uh, scared to go in particular areas because they say, well, it, it's haunted. And uh, marvelous ghost stories that, that you hear uh, from military personnel, some of which have been published in the Ministry of Defense's uh, uh, kind of house magazine. Uh, the editor a few years ago ran a letter from, from a military police officer on patrol who'd seen a ghost and added a little remark at the end and just said, has anyone else got a, an interesting story like this? You, I mean, absolutely, dozens and dozens of stories came from very, very tough, uh, no-nonsense military police officers uh, but who said, look, we, we've seen these things, and they're, they're just unreal. And, and what would you do when you got a call on something like that? How do you handle that kind of call? There's really nothing much you can do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I got some calls, for example, about... Um, ghost sightings in the very building in which I worked, the Ministry of Defense's headquarters building on Whitehall, which was built, we knew, on the site of the old Whitehall Palace. So it's, it's a site where habitation goes back hundreds upon hundreds of years. Um, and yes, of, of course, I, I would take a look uh, down there, but uh, there was, you know, I've, ne I've never seen anything myself. Um, these things, it's, it's odd. They seem to be uh, seen by people who have no particular knowledge or interest about them. I think sometimes if you go looking for these things, you won't find them. They'll find you. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's very little that you can do to investigate uh, a ghost sighting like that. 
I noticed that, that you sort of kind of moved into the abduction realm. You seem to have a, an interest in abduction. You've done some work with abductions. I heard you talk to uh, about 100 different people uh, with abduction stories. What sort of uh, precipitated your move from uh, UFO investigation into abductions? Well, I suppose there is a, a link because, of course, the abductees say that in a literal sense they believe that they're taken into a UFO. So I, I, I think it's a sort of fair uh, link to make. Uh, but again, I didn't go out looking for these people. They found me. Um, just as people would report UFO sightings to the Ministry of Defense, some people would report abduction uh, experiences. And, and then after I left the UFO project, many, many people, uh, when I spoke about out about this issue in public, uh, again contacted me privately. So uh, I've, I've investigated, yes, as you say, over the years, probably about 100 cases here in Britain. And, and it's extremely interesting. I don't know what's going on. Something's going on. These aren't, these aren't people after uh, sort of 15 minutes of fame. I do a lot of work with the media, and they always say, can you get some abductees? And the answer is, no, actually, I can't, because they're not interested in, in television and, and newspapers for the most part. And, and one of the things you've been particularly critical about is the lack of a plan uh, for dealing with an ET discovery. If, if a UFO were to land on the White House lawn or if they were to hover over Big Ben, um, there, there doesn't seem to be a plan for dealing with, with an ET discovery. Um, I guess talk a little bit about your take on that lack of a plan and also feel free to sort of segue that into the media firestorm that came about when you sort of went public with your criticisms late last year, around this time last year, when you resigned from the Ministry of Defense. Yes, I, I felt that the scientific community uh, have their detection protocol for what to do if radio astronomers ever detect a signal which they think comes from an extraterrestrial civilization. So the scientific community at least has something some sort of contingency plan for uh, who to call, what to do, where to go. Uh, the government, the military, has nothing. Um, and this, to me, is a mistake. This is, this is a classic low-probability, high-consequence situation, which even if you're skeptical about UFOs, you should say, well, okay, chances are it won't happen. But if it does, we don't have a plan... That's not a good situation to be in. Yeah. Uh, I've worked with the military for 21 years. You, you have a plan for just about everything, however unlikely. It didn't seem to me too much to ask to have a plan uh, for, for first contact, uh, not least to address issues such as the potential biological hazard that might arise from contact with an extraterrestrial uh, species. Now, I made these sorts of discussions in a very uh, comment in a fairly low-key way in the first interviews that I gave when I left the Ministry of Defence last year. And uh, the, the popular press here uh, seized upon them. And uh, some of the headlines in national newspapers uh, saying that I, I, I'd been talking about an imminent alien invasion. Uh, I, I mean, the whole situation got completely out of control. I had to go on national television on the BBC to correct my, uh, my remarks. Uh, the whole thing became a phenomenal media circus. Uh, it, it, was, uh, it was an interesting uh, time. It really was. It sounds like it. 
it sounds like you were probably more frustrated that it came about that way than than anything. Uh, although I guess it did raise awareness of the issue in some respects. It, it, yes, I, I don't know what to think. In a sense, um, yes, you're right, it, it did raise awareness. On the other hand, I think it muddied the waters uh, a little bit that people were talking about um, scare stories about alien invasion rather than uh, some of the more serious defense and national security uh, issues that I would have liked to have seen uh, discussed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, for example, uh, one of the very obvious things that comes up time and time again is, is the flight safety implications of the UFO phenomenon. There have been a number of near misses between commercial airliners and UFOs uh, over the years. Uh, one case from Britain in 1995 Uh, a commercial airliner with about 60 passengers on board, I think it was a Boeing 737, came very, very close to a collision with a UFO. Now, our civil aviation authority took no view on what the UFO was, Um, but be that as it may, um, there was a near collision. So whatever you think UFOs are, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, that's got to be something... Uh, of concern. That's the sort of issue that I was trying to get debated. Yeah. Now, I know you were in Washington, D.C. this past September for the X-Conference 3. What are your thoughts on the exopolitics movement that sort of uh, sprung about in the last, you know, uh, since around year 2000 or so? I don't know. Um, it's, it's difficult. I, I was invited to speak, so I went to speak, and obviously I was, I was discussing very, very factual uh, issues, uh, pilot sightings, radar visual sightings, everything that I said um, could be backed up by material that had been released on, on the government's website and, and things. Exopolitics, I, I, I think, is, is rather more uh, difficult to back up. I mean, there are some extraordinary stories doing the rounds, um, which are, are not perhaps... Um, verifiable in the sense that uh, that the information that I'm coming out is. I mean, clearly all these people are, are very, very uh, well-intentioned and, and enthusiastic, but quite where exopolitics fits in with, with what I would call the more mainstream ufology, where people are very much looking at radar tapes and sightings from police officers and military personnel and and analyzing photographs and videos in a scientific way. I, I don't know. These are two slightly different approaches. I'm not saying that it's it's the wrong way to do things. It's, it's just a different way of doing things. It's not necessarily the, the, the way that I um, do things. Um, but it is, uh, I suppose, a few years ago, we hadn't even heard of the word exopolitics. Um, it's, it's an interesting time for ufology. Um, exopolitics is, is clearly a part of it, and it will be interesting to see how it pans out over the next few years. One of the other things that you've recently kind of got involved in is the 9-11 movement. You're in, in debates and such. Uh, you're on the, you know, you're sort of defending the uh, the U.S. side in, in the 9-11 story, that kind of thing, and you're taking the reverse side, I guess you could say, of the 9-11 truth movement perspective. How did you get interested in this whole branch of, you know, the esoteric? It's kind of a completely uh, off the beaten path of the UFO world. How did you get involved with this, and, and how did you sort of, like, become a part of the other side of that debate? Well, I think that um, because in the UFO 
community, there are a lot of conspiracy theorists, and a lot of conspiracy theorists um, are interested not just in one conspiracy uh, theory, but in in a number of different ones. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I of course got to hear about uh, these various claims, and people said to me, "Well, why don't you look at at 9/11?" So I thought, "Well, okay." Um, I've been challenged to look at that. I'll, I'll do so. So, as as I always try to do in these situations, I looked at both sides of of uh, the argument. Um, I attended a number of talks by people who who thought that 9/11 was an inside job. I watched the video Loose Change. Uh, I went on to to various uh, 9/11 Truth forums and things to to see what was going on, but I also read the 9-11 Commission report, I read the Popular Mechanics investigation into that, and I applied the knowledge and experience that I picked up in 21 years working for government, most recently in a security job, and I concluded that actually, you know, this was, as the the government said, uh, an attack by Al-Qaeda, and frankly, it didn't strike me as surprising that a commercial airliner hits a building, that that building should catch on fire and fall down. Now, I've made myself hugely unpopular (laughs) with a a, a vast number of people. Uh, You wouldn't believe the the names that I've been called and the hate mail that I've I've got about this. But I was challenged to take a look, and I I took a look, and I'm continuing to look into this. But um, uh, to me, Al-Qaeda had a track record of... of, um, uh, attacking Western targets. Uh, Osama bin Laden had declared a fatwa uh, against the West and had made no differentiation between military and civilian targets. Um, you know, and and to me, that seemed to be the, the most logical explanation. So, yeah, I, I'm interested in the psychology of belief. I'm interested in conspiracy theories. I will take a look at them, but I will call it how I see it, and I'm not in this business to be popular. Just the last sort of big picture question, where do you see ufology and the UFO phenomenon, uh, just ufology really, we, we kind of know the UFO phenomenon is going, we don't know, um, but where do you see ufology going in the future? Uh, we've talked about the FOIA revolution in the UK, um, here in the US, you know, it seems like we've gotten some some more mainstream press than we used to in the last year or so, and and as we talked about, the exopolitics is sort of getting into this activism aspect of things. Where do you see ufology going in the future? I think there are a number of strands. Firstly, as as you've said, uh, FOI is going to be increasingly important. Um, the French government have released their archives. The British government has made a good start, and there's more to come. Uh, the Italian government has released a lot of material. The Brazilian government has released a lot of material. Uh, so I think that process will continue. That's part of it. I think the other part, and again, you've, you've alluded to this, um, some fairly big names have cropped up in association with this subject. Uh, Paul Hellyer, the former Canadian defense minister, is, is somebody who's spoken out about the UFO phenomenon. Uh, Fife Symington is, is again, somebody who has uh, made some interesting statements on this. Uh, so I think we're going to see uh, perhaps increasingly some establishment uh, figures speak out. 
Uh, ultimately, however, I go back to, to a point that I made earlier in our, our conversation. This is, this is actually an event-led phenomenon. Uh, you can go for months and months without anything interesting happening, and then suddenly you'll have something like the Chicago O'Hare UFO sightings, uh, or the Rendlesham Forest incident, or the Cosford incident, or, or indeed another Roswell, who knows. Um, so ultimately, uh, researchers can, can dig, and uh, writers can write, but ultimately, we are dependent on the sightings themselves and the incidents, and, and you never know. And this is what, to me, makes this subject interesting. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow could bring a case as big as Roswell. We simply don't know. Exactly, yeah. What does tomorrow bring for you, Nick Pope? Uh, what's, what's coming up on the horizon for you? Uh, what can people look forward to? Uh, you know, uh, from you speaking engagements, books, anything like that you want to uh, plug or, or mention here? Well, I, I'm just uh, keeping on, really, uh, just doing uh, quite a lot of television and radio work, quite a lot of writing for national newspapers. Uh, I will continue to research and investigate this phenomenon. I will continue to try and champion it where I can um, and say, look, um, we may not agree on everything, but uh, what I do agree, I think, with most people in this subject uh, on is that it should be looked at properly, scientifically, thoroughly. It's very interesting. We've all got different views, but let's, let's try and come together uh, and investigate it. And let's try and build some bridges with the scientific community. That's, that's something I'm passionate about. Let's not demonize SETI. Uh, let's not demonize, demonize government and the military either, but let's, let's try and reach out to the SETI community, the radio astronomers. Just to sort of throw in a little side question here based on, on what you're saying, I get the impression, but maybe it's because I'm uh, sort of like stuck in the UFO community because of the work and the interviews I do and stuff like that, but it seems like the SETI people don't want anything to do with the UFO people as, as much as the UFO people don't want anything to do with the SETI people. Well, I don't know. I, I um, A couple of months ago uh, was on a BBC interview um, where – I, I was uh, debating the subject, and I, I was. Uh, uh, and and what, what was interesting was that uh, Seth Shostak and I seemed to agree on far more than than on which we disagreed. And, and actually, I, I think um, you know, like many many things in life, if you just sit down and talk to people, you actually find out you have far more in common than you have setting you apart. So, so I think that's, that's what I would urge, dialogue. Uh, I mean, it has to be a two-way process, of course, but um, uh, I, I think, actually, if the SETI community and the UFO community took that little bit of time to just sit down and get beyond the sound bites, they'd realize they were actually after the same thing, but just doing it in different ways. All right. Well, it's important to keep that in mind. Well... Nick, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I said, uh, you've easily been one of the most requested guests we've had in the, in the two years plus that we've been doing the show. A lot of people write to me saying, you know, when are you going to get Nick Pope on the show? you got to interview Nick Pope. Now, everybody, we've had Nick Pope on. It was an awesome interview. Um, I, hopefully, we, we covered some ground that hasn't been done in, in any of your many media appearances, and I had a great time talking to you. The Ufology World Needs More People Like You. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. The books are Open Skies, Closed Minds, The Uninvited, Operation Thunderchild, and Operation Thunderstrike. And you can find out more information on Nick at the website nickpope.net. Nick, thanks again for coming on the show. Sure thing. No, it's, it's been very interesting. I've enjoyed our chat.
that does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks to the venerable Nick Pope for coming on the show. Of course, you can find out more information on Nick Pope at the following website, www.nickpope.net, N-I-C-K-P-O-P-E dot net. Definitely check it out. Lots of great information there. Moving right along, even though we're running up against the clock, I can't deny the listeners any longer. It's time for BOA Audio listener feedback. This week's letter comes from Jeff in Astoria, New York. Here's what Jeff has to say. Hey, Tim. I wanted to take a minute to write in, in addition to posting in the forums, after hearing the Keith Chester interviews. Nice job. I can't believe you're the only person who has contacted him for interviews, but kudos to you for doing so. It sounds like it is a very important book for ufology, and it's a shame that not even his local media has taken an interest in his work. I plan on ordering the book soon. Keep up the good work, Jeff, in Astoria, New York. Thank you very much for writing in, Jeff. Thank you for the kudos on the Keith Chester interviews. Definitely one of my favorite interviews for the season so far. Just a wealth of new information there. And there's a tremendous buzz in the UFO community over the Keith Chester book. I should point out also that following Keith's appearance on VOA Audio, the local media in his area did pick up the story. The Baltimore Sun had a nice write-up on Strange Company, Military Encounters with UFOs in World War II. Uh, You can either go to the Baltimore Sun or do a Google search. The title of the article was Bell Air Man Writes of UFOs in Wartime. That's a great article on Keith Chester from the Baltimore Sun. So it looks like some of the mainstream media may be taking an interest in Keith's book. Thank you for writing in, Jeff. Again, thanks for the kudos. Stay tuned to BOA Audio. We're going to have a ton of other great interviews coming down the pike in the weeks and months to come here as 2007 turns into 2008. If you would like to be a part of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's two ways to do it. You can do what Jeff did. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com, boaaudio at hotmail.com, or simply go to benallofamerica.com, click the contact button on the left-hand side of the screen. It's in the menu. You'll see it. It's not that hard to find. That'll bring you to the contact page, and it'll put you on the road to getting your correspondence to me, and in turn into the inbox for BOA Audio listener feedback. Up next is, of course, the thanks to the fantastic BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Joe V, and Tina Senna. My name may be on the website, my friends, but these people are really the fuel that makes the BOA machine run. This past week, Leslie got a lot of great coverage and press for her piece, Wonderful 40 and Wonders. Chances are, if you're a reader at The Anomalist or some of the other big paranormal news sites, you saw the pickup for Wonderful 40 and Wonders. That was Leslie's Gray Matters at BOA. Leslie, a fine job on that piece. Chiron took a look at Coast to Coast AM's occasional weekend host, Raleigh James. A great piece from Chiron, and as usual, looking in areas that have slipped through the cracks so far in Esoterica. As he points out, where's all the buzz for Raleigh James? You're not hearing too much of it, but we're hearing some coverage of Raleigh James via Chiron's K-Files at BOA. And, of course, I would be remiss without pointing out, this past Monday, R. Lee's Trickster's Realm celebrated two years at BOA. I cannot thank Regan Lee enough for her tremendous contributions over the last two years at Benall of America. Congratulations, Regan, on two years at BOA, and here's to many more. 
We say it week in, week out, but we say it because it's true, my friends. If you're only listening to VOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at vanillaofamerica.com, you're only getting half the story. VOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. If you're a longtime VOA Audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, there's a couple of ways to do it. For starters, we've been talking about it over the last couple of weeks. It's Veiny Mania at the BOA store. We've got about 17, 18 books left, so we're on a pretty good pace here of people picking up stuff from the BOA store and, in turn, getting a free copy of last week's guest, Jeremy Veiny's book, I Know Why the Aliens Don't Land. Go to banalofamerica.com for details on this amazing deal. Not only are you getting something from the BOA store, but you're also getting a free book, and you're helping the BOA franchise pay the bills here on this audio series and the website. Maybe you don't want any merchandise, maybe you just want to help out, so you can always do that as well. You can go to banalofamerica.com and scroll down past the flashing button for the BOA store, and there's a nice little simple gold PayPal button. Click that, go to PayPal, and make a donation. No donation is too small, and all donations go towards keeping BOA Audio and BOA up and running and freely available for all of our great listeners the world over. Next week on the program, it's going to be December 22nd, and I think you know what that means. It's time, once again, for the BOA Audio Christmas Special. Now, usually we don't announce the name of the guest until we've taped the interview, but we'll be taping the Christmas Special on December 19th, this coming Wednesday. You're just going to have to figure it out for yourself. He'll be making his third appearance on BOA Audio, his third Christmas special, and we'll be discussing his book, Captured, which details the Betty and Barney Hill story. So there's your teasers for you. should be easy to figure out, but we won't say who it is exactly until I have the interview on tape and ready to roll out for you folks in the great listening audience. There's only one way to celebrate the holiday at BOA, and that's with the BOA Audio Christmas special. The tradition continues next weekend. On that note, we wrap it up for the week. Thank you folks so much for listening. A thousand apologies for the lateness of this week's episode. Things will settle down, I assure you. It's just been a wild December so far. Come on back next week for the third annual BOA Audio Christmas special. Until then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.